0: If it's so weak that it can't cope with some laughter, then it deserves to die. You don't make fun of the weak, actually. You make fun and laughter out of the things that are strong. A quote from today's author from the Who Are You program with Jeff Hutchinson. The Reverend Chris Bedding is a real-life Anglican priest who serves the parish of Darlington, Bellevue. He is also an actor, comedian, musician and activist. Chris has appeared in the Theatre Sports National Finals and Grand Championships, as well as appearing on ABC's a current affairs program, 7.30. He created the role of Brian in the new musical, Falling, on, uh, Falling to the Top, which won the Art Rage Award at Fringe World Festival 2013. He is a regular guest on 720 ABC local radio, but is an activist for just treatment of asylum seekers, marriage equality and workers' rights. He is the national president of Changing Attitude and a proud member of the Society of Catholic Priests. But he is also an acclaimed director, which is where we met. In 2008, during the rehearsals of Cinderella, <laughs> Ellen first major pantomime was where Chris introduced me the theatrical philosophy of Laban. Chris welcome. Thank you Ryan it's good to be with you. So Chris to start off what does comedy mean for you?
1: I think uh, comedy has the role of holding a mirror up to the world Mm. and making us look at the world through a different lens and laughing at that then provides a way for us to cope with the world, a way for us to understand what's going on around us, uh, a way to kind of get rid of the the stress and pressure uh, that the constant press of experience creates around us. And it's also, for me, fundamentally a truth-telling device. Mm -hmm. So when you make comedy, if you're making comedy uh, that is derived from truth or based on truth, it's usually much more funny, uh, but it also has a a transformative role. So, uh, for instance, satire, which is a a key part of uh, the kind of comedy that I make, means that you're honing in on, say, hypocrisy or corruption or uh, misuse of power uh, and shining a light onto that. And by laughing at it, you actually kind of pull the rug out from underneath it. And it means that people who are in those positions of power or or who are exploiting others uh, are then kind of, uh, they're exposed. And when people laugh at them, that means that their power then is subverted And uh, the power balance can be restored a little bit. So I I actually see comedy uh, in many ways as having a uh, transformative social role. Firstly, because getting people in a room and laughing together is a way of building community, building connections. And in any great comedy venue or theatrical environment, um, you build a community around laughter. But it also means that once people come out of the comedy creation space, they then take what they've discovered or learned and it starts to affect their daily life. So comedy is a a kind of... uh, It's a beacon and people are drawn to it. Uh, But it's also a little bit like catching a virus. Once you've caught the comedy virus or the satirical virus, then you take it out and spread it amongst everyone you know. And that excites me. It excites me when people... I catch the bug and then go around sharing it with everyone they kiss or touch.
0: Yeah. That's wonderful, yeah, comedy. But I, I feel too there's this, because there's sides, I don't know, if, if comedy was like a drug, like I definitely mm. feel like it's definitely, you know, you know, with the pumping of the endorphins, the endorphins. Yep. There are times where I want to chase that high, my mm. first high, you know, having a good old yeah laugh. Look,
1: there, there are, I think there are two highs around comedy there's the high of laughing. And uh, and people do chase that. Uh, there's a reason people still go to the circus. There's a reason people watch that terrible show with. What's the show with the big ba- the big big big, big bang oh, big theory? Yeah, right, yeah. it's terrible, um, and yet it's just it's cheap and easy laughter, and it does have a physiological effect, and uh, it, it it yeah it can become a kind of addictive. But there's also the high that comes from creating comedy and getting the laugh, which is a yeah. different high. And that is all about ego. We shouldn't kid ourselves. Getting people to laugh at your jokes is a massive boost to the ego. And that's why most comedians are deeply insecure people. They go into comedy to get that kind of reward, if you like. Um, And you see it as well. You know, when you think back to your school days, the class clown, while they were funny, they were often also someone who was a bit screwed in the head. (laughs) And, you know, so the, the, the life of the comedian is uh, is really fraught psychologically fraught because they love laughing they often are very passionate most comedians are also activists of some kind they have a real vision for the world but they they also are looking for approval and love and and getting those laughs and and i think um the comedian walks a very a very fine line because uh getting the laugh from the audience can become as you say very addictive and it can also mean that you sacrifice your values or give up your principles in pursuit of the laugh. The truly great comedian is the person who finds the way to integrate their values and their worldview with the ability to get the crowd to laugh. Uh, And that's when you see people really, um, you know, exponentially grow as comedians when they're not just uh, making, you know, tit and bum jokes, but they are actually causing people to think and reflect on the world around them as well.
0: I think um, just to also connect, because well, what I, see, I usually ask, and I don't want to get straight into it, I want to ask it later, but mm. I usually ask, you know, what are qualities that I, an artist should have? Mm. And last week's chapter of the Chronicles, um, I was interviewing um, Paul Selwyn Norton, who's the artistic director of Struck Dance, uh-huh. you know, and a choreographer, and, and we were chatting about, you know, the world of dance, which is you know, great. And so fascinating, and there's a lot of political elements, um, especially with ballet, mm. like the invention of ballet. But the one thing, when I asked him that question, he did noted like, in in terms of dancing, but this can be applied to all fields is generosity. Mm. And I think, and I think, he, I liked what you said. Mm. You know, the, acknowledging the audience when you're performing in any in anything, I think, yeah, is vital mm. generosity.
1: A great comedian loves the crowd and really wants the best for them and that may actually mean sometimes offending the crowd and it may mean uh it may mean actually taking them to a place they weren't ready to go um but if you look at particularly your long form festival shows which are becoming much more um accessible in Perth and and around the country if if you've got an hour with someone they they may well start off um doing uh, you know, have you ever noticed jokes and what is the deal with jokes? Um, but the, the, the great, the really excellent comedians um, in stand-up are then taking you to some some issue. And in Australia right now, that's often around gender or race uh, or financial inequality or the way we treat asylum seekers. You know, they, yeah. they're actually able to to comment about that. And it's really interesting to me the blowback that some comedians get um, and when they they're accused of preaching, uh, but this is dear yeah. to my heart, yeah. you know, because as a preacher, I'm like, uh, why do you say this word preaching like it's it's wrong, like it's a pejorative? Um, the whole nature of preaching is good news. So why is it then that when, um, for instance, uh, on the project, this is an often. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often a target on the project when you know when a comedian, when Peter Hellier or yeah. one of, one of those people uh, will speak up about a, an issue, they then get accused like it's not their right, it's not their business. How dare you? Your job is to make us laugh, and you're actually causing us to think, um, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. as if as if those two things are mutually exclusive, and it's actually a transgression on the part of the comedian to do that, which is is a nonsense. Uh, you look at to me the great comedians are clowns i think uh when when you see you know not a birthday party clown as valid (laughs) as that is you know i love a good i love a good balloon animal but when you see those beautiful clowns properly trained clowns who embrace their own sadness and and melancholy and uh and and can actually very much be marginalized characters and but who use that to subvert the power systems uh, that they inhabit um both in on and off the stage i think that's that's extraordinary work and and that to me is the i don't know the foundation of of modern uh, mm. stand-up comedy uh and and sketch comedy which then challenges the the way things are and as an improviser which is another thing yeah. and improvisers and stand-up comedians are not always friends um there's a, a good natured and sometimes quite aggressive Rivalry, there improvisers. It's it's doubly and triply difficult because what you really want to do is just say fuck a lot because mm. audiences love that, um, or you want to pretend to fall over. You know those. Are, that, that's an easy thing uh, to to get a laugh. But when the the great improviser with with no planning takes an audience on a journey through an issue while they may laugh but also have to sort of confront some hard realities that too is I think indicative of a craft that is mature that is uh, self-aware that knows full well that their primary task is to get people laughing but who is also not afraid to dig down kind of into the shadow, dig into the psyche of the audience uh, and let that kind of, let the kind of, I think of it like a dark goop, this kind of dark goop comes flowing out of their heads and nobody likes it. It's, it's discomforting, but in the dark safety of a comedy room or a theater uh, where the dark goop can come flowing out and not everyone can see it at once. And you come away changed by the experience. That to me is a very exciting process.
0: Mm. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned the word fuck. Now, I remember this was like a couple of... I think maybe two years ago when Barry Humphreys, he was the... Was he the artist... He became the artistic director of the uh, South Australian... Yeah, it might have been Adelaide uh, Festival. Adelaide Festival, cabaret or something. Yeah. And I'm not sure... You, oh, you must have heard how he had a rule. And I think it got a bit construed in the press about how apparently um, Barry hum, Barry Humphreys said he's got like a... He banned the word Ban swearing mm. in his festival. Yeah, I just. What's your point? Of, what's yep, your yep. take on swearing and? Sure, it, I uh,
1: in my professional life don't swear much. Yeah. Uh, occasionally, if I'm alone, um, in my kind of personal life, when I'm with trusted friends, I probably let loose with the uh, with the swears a bit more. Um, a few years ago. How many years ago now? We did a fringe world Perth fringe world show called Shitstorm. Uh, Pirate Church presents Shitstorm, and so all our posters and all our all our materials um, had the word shit on them. And I don't, I'm not offended by that word, obviously, and nor are our audiences. They yeah. they don't they don't really care. And we wrote a song. The opening number of the show was called "We're in a Shitstorm." <laughs> Uh, And it was really talking about the way, you know, this world, the world that surrounds us. And um, we also, uh, part of Pirate Church is that there's a Pirate Church service. and, um, And I was the designated Pirate Preacher. And uh, I had the audience shouting at, uh, shouting back at me, you know, I did these rhetorical questions like, you know, and, and what hemmed them in on every side? And the audience shouted, shit, stop. So it was a really, like, in terms of the integration, that was our award winning show. on Best yeah. WA Comedy for that show. And, uh, and we were really proud of it because we actually integrated from the marketing through to every element of the show was a, was a really nicely integrated whole, um, which is hard to achieve with a brand new concept. I am always amazed by people who find swearing intrinsically offensive.
0: Mm.
1: If I'm abusing someone verbally and using swearing as part of that, well, I see that's offensive. If I am trying to demean or diminish or manipulate the other person in some way, I see why that's offensive. But just, you know, dropping something on your toe and saying shit or... Uh, you know, saying, oh, fuck, what a hot day. Mm. I don't see why that is offensive. But what I notice is this. People who get offended by the use of conventional swear words, often people who don't get offended by truly offensive things. So they don't get offended by the rates of Aboriginal poverty in Australia. They don't get offended by the the mandatory detention of asylum seekers. They don't get offended by homelessness, um, which are genuinely offensive things but uh it's it's sort of i don't know easier is it or is it is it a way of covering up their guilt about the things they can't control perhaps if i can control someone's language that makes me feel okay uh about about all the other injustices in the world so i'm always really careful to distinguish because you can you can abuse someone without ever swearing and you can uh you can build someone up with every second word being a swear word the words themselves are just tools. Uh, it's how you use them and the, the intent and disposition you bring to the words that are, are important. That said, I would say to any comedian whose primary mechanism is just dropping swear words, it's boring, really boring. Mm. And uh, the only crowd that that works with is a late night drunk crowd. Mm. And if that's your, if that's your audience, then I wish you all the best. But it's not what I call cutting edge art. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, God, I, I don't know how to make a segue into this, so I'll just say it out loud. Yeah, sure. What brought you uh, to WA?
1: Oh, I um. so I was ordained a priest in 2004. I've been a deacon for a year before that. And I, I was sent to Dubbo in the central west of New South Wales. Uh, Dubbo is a wonderful place. Mm. Um, by wonderful, I mean slightly horrifying. And, uh, it, look, I had a good time there, uh, and uh, but I ended up having a big fight with my bishop, which, you know, when you're in your 20s, and uh, you're a bit of an angry young man, and and, uh, and quite passionate. Uh, he and I didn't see eye to eye on certain things, and uh, and I said to him, I said to him, oh, can I go looking for a, another position? Because he wanted to place me in a very small country town, yeah. and I was panicking a bit about that. And he said, oh, you can go looking, but I don't think you'll find anything. Well, next thing, I've I've been uh, offered a position in Perth. Uh, at a school in uh, in the northern suburbs as the chaplain. And uh, so, long story short, I packed up my things and came over. It's funny, I've been here nearly 10 years now. Yeah. And that is, like, on one level, that's no time at all. But on another, that's a very long yeah. time. I've now lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. And so I feel like I'm a Perth person yeah. now. So when I, but when I was 27, I thought, oh, this is just the next stage of the adventure. I'll just go and we'll go to Perth. Next stop Hong Kong. Next stop swaziland Like I had no clue, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, where 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 it all might go. So yeah, I came over to be a school chaplain. It lasted a couple of years. I, I and then took on the parish that I'm in now in the hills, which in many ways is such a cliche. Like I, I'm doing now the work that I kind of said I'd never do, which is the little village. I'm the little I'm right. the vicar yeah, of the yeah, little yeah. village church. Um, I'm I'm genuinely the vicar of Dibley. Like. Um, <laughs> just I'm just the boy version and yeah. um it's not quite I mean that show obviously that is a, a beloved show amongst mm-hmm. um, amongst Anglicans especially but I've got the whole thing the little stone church and the house across the road yeah. and the set amongst the trees and the and 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 people refer to Darlington as a village it's one of the few parts of Perth where people have sort of maintained that identity. Yeah. It's suburbia here. Yeah. We, there's a, it's a bit of a pretense actually to talk about the village, <laughs> but it still maintains a kind of village. There's a village green, and there's and people you know walk their pets and interact like like it's the olden days. And and I'm and here I live in the centre of the village. Yeah. You know, with the with the stone church with the with the pointy roof. If the church doesn't have a pointy roof, it's not a real church anyway. I we can say that for, with certainty. Yeah, so I came here a decade ago, uh, and it wasn't until I'd been a school chaplain and and I was and I finished there and was doing a short term placement and people had always said you should try stand up comedy, mm. uh, and I'd done a lot of um, uh, theatre, community theatre basically, mm. uh, and I'd been a musician, I'm a singer and pianist, and I sort of farted about with different things creatively, um, but it wasn't until I went in the Royal Comedy Competition and uh, did a bit of stand-up. I didn't tell anyone. And, and then, oh, I kind of, I was in the state final, so I'm like, oh, gosh, people are going to find out now. And, and then that, that got me started on stand-up. Next thing I was doing uh, improv. Um, through that I met Wurzel and we started Pirate mm-hmm. Church. And that's kind of, so in the last six or seven years, I've had this burgeoning of, of the artistic life. Yeah. The funny thing for me is that when I was finishing school, uh so I was 17 I wasn't super public about a sense of vocation to be a priest because I well I just wasn't and because I didn't want people picking on me mainly mm-hmm. and everybody assumed that I'd pursue a career in the arts that was just a, a given and people assumed that that would be as a singer because I don't know if you know this Ryan I'm an amazing singer <laughs> um and uh yeah that was just that people were like oh obviously you will go and study music and become a professional musician Mm. and I actually mentally put that all to one side and and went no I have this vocation to be a priest I'm actually have to I have to leave the arts behind I will only ever have be a a kind of hobbyist in the arts I went off to theological college I worked as a youth worker I was ordained at the minimum possible age and started working and and these days I don't work very hard at all. But in the early days, I was working, you know, seventy-hour weeks and yeah. very demanding roles. And so, you know, I I might I sang in a local choir. I did a community theatre production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Yeah, you know, I did a couple of NIDA short courses, but I, I I still kept very much kept a focus on on my work. And then, yeah, it's only been in the last say I'd say seven years that. I've rationalised with myself that actually it's possible to lead more than one life uh, and to be, yeah, to to kind of live in in different contexts at the same time. And it's helped, that's been encouraged by people. So my parishioners are are beautiful. They, They actually, if I ever said to them, oh, well, I can't, Go to the theatre sports nationals because I don't want to, you know, forsake work. They'd say, "Don't be ridiculous. Get on the plane. Yeah. Um, get someone in to replace you for the weekend." And and uh, and they they don't care. Um, they love seeing advertising about you know shows that I'm doing. They lo- love it when I'm on radio, yeah. and 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 they really there's a real sense from my congregation that they say, "We're releasing you to go and do interesting good stuff in the world because we think yeah. it's worth doing." and Part of that is that, you know, there's a workload, obviously, but um, they I think there's a confidence that I, I get all the kind of jobs done, work done around the parish that I need to. Uh, nobody's sort of being ignored or left behind. And mm. so they're really happy to say, look, just get on, you know, do, do what's life-giving for you. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it, that's been such a blessing because there are other contexts, I can tell you with certainty, where, you know, you would be, yeah, there 'd be demands made, you know, like how many hours have you wasted on other things this yeah. week, and you know where are you focused on what really matters or or not um, so i 'm actually really blessed to to serve a congregation of very progressive open minded people and also very just very kind people who really love me not in they don 't adore me um yeah. it's not a, it's not a sycophantic kind of love where they're like oh we just think you're so great um it's a it's the love of like that you might have for a family member i just yeah. want the best for you and and yeah it's it's very i don't know it's heartwarming to be in a context where i i have that kind of backstop um from a bunch of people who don't owe me anything yeah uh who i mean i'm i'm their priest and they're they're the congregation that I serve, but they—they don't—they have to be as good to me as they are. And um, I'm like, gosh, there is good in the world still, and yeah, and, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I just love it.
0: What makes Perth a place? Because I'm really happy. Well, thank God I met you, Chris, because I learned so much from you, and thank God you directed me. I have to say, Chris directed me in two pantomimes: uh, Cinderella. Babes in the Wood. Oh, yeah. But he also... But... And it was a really wonderful growing experience. Um, He directed me in a play called um, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. Mm -hmm. And it it was a wonderful experience. Sorry, I'm slowly digressing. What makes Perth a place to develop one's art?
1: Yeah. When I first came to Perth a decade ago, I was quite shocked at the... At the art scene uh, in not in a good way like I was really (laughs) quite taken aback I grew up in Sydney and the diversity of art in Sydney uh, was much greater than Mm. Perth the opportunity uh, to observe and create art significantly better but even the community theatre scene in Sydney was very different much more professionalized Mm. uh, a much higher standard And yeah, coming to Perth and and finding ways to access the arts in this town um, 10 years ago, I found quite challenging. And and, and I must say, initially I was quite scathing. I feel like in the last decade, Perth has absolutely burgeoned as an art scene. Mm. We can't discredit the fact that the mining boom has had an effect. Where there's money... Uh, and there 's spare money patronage of the arts is is more feasible, mm. so there has been significant sponsorship. Mm. Um, more people just have more or had more money during the mining boom to spend on tickets uh, and there 's been government initiatives to to enhance the arts and I think there 's also been more of a, a an inclination around tourism to see Perth offering artistic opportunities mm. as part of the the tourism kind of spectrum of of uh, offerings that the town has i think right now perth is willing to take risks and i think the fringe world festival has been a major catalyst for that fringe world is a bit of a mixed blessing i think that say from a pirate church perspective we've we've been nominated for awards and won awards and been very well served by fringe world uh, they have enabled us to build an audience and build a, a show that's toured nationally and given us a platform. Mm. I think I think it's over. Our relationship with Fringe World is over, not because we're against Fringe World, but because we've done what we've actually become mainstream. Mm. So, so we've moved out of the fringe and into being a, a mainstream piece of um, uh, piece of comedy mm. slash theatre, and and that's only been able to happen with Fringe World as an incubator. Yeah. Um, and alongside that, we should recognise Lazy Susan's Comedy Den, yeah. which is a, a small and quite low tech kind of venue <laughs> that presents some, you know, some challenges uh, in some ways. But the fact that um, that Sam Longley, uh, as a kind of artistic leader in Perth, has made that venue available not just to us but to so many uh, um, embryonic art forms, uh, has has enabled lots of different things to to grow. So. Perth, I think, has, in a decade, moved from being a bit of a backwater to being a place where you can realistically establish a career in the arts. Mm. It's hard, but you can yeah. do it. And where, as an incubator for arts, it's it's really excellent. And we're seeing that increasingly shows that, that grow up in Perth, then go on to big fringe festivals around the world, other festivals around the country... A number of the the great comedians in Australia are now WA-raised or based or have WA as part of their story. And I think we're also seeing the audiences mature. People are more inclined to go and see theatre in Perth now or see any art form in Perth now. It's becoming more normal to go for a night out. And also great things like building Fringe World hubs away from the the centre of the city has been exciting. Uh, and I think even in the little uh, community theatres, community theatre groups, and the locally owned theatres around Perth, more risky um, material mm-hmm. is being performed. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, but I hope that Perth will continue to be seen as a real hub for the arts.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And like I forgot the play because, yeah, speaking, I've noticed in regards to the last year' French World's Festival. I remember um, in the hills, uh, for, for our, ooh, the carpet, um, our dear listeners, there's this special um, one-act festival in the hills yeah. that's done by the Darlington Theatre Players and the Marlowe Theatre. And I remember one of the, the new plays that were on, I think it was, I think it was, in, they did in 2016. That's right, they did in 2016. It was well-received. I think it won an award. Um, and they took it to Fringe, mm. straight off the bat. So there's mm. there's this nice, wonderful stepping stone. Yeah. Um, and I
1: think I think that's been missing in Perth. Yeah. Um, the 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 marquee uh, theatre and arts companies have done their thing and done them well um, with high budgets and corporate support, uh, and the little local community groups have done their thing uh, in keeping the kind of vision alive for uh, local theatre. And Fringe World has bridged the gap uh, where people can find an audience, um, and where people you know, if you're only paying ten bucks for a ticket. Uh, and you can go down and have a bit of food and a glass of wine and and it's it 's a beautiful environment down there in the city in the in the various precincts that 's uh, opening up the arts to audiences as well so I, we have to commend them there 's some criticisms to be made of the model of fringe world, but that 's fringe festivals around the world uh, I, I I think Perth generally has grown up a bit too we We feel less isolated I think Perth is looking more to Asia and asia's also looking to Perth. You know, WA and the more affluent Asian nations are only going to grow in their relationship uh, with one another and that's going to include the arts as well. It'll be very interesting to see what that looks like over the next mm. decade or so.
0: Ah, this one. I've to read this question very closely. Okay. <laughs> what comes to you when the name Paul Wurzel Montague is mentioned? Mm. mm. Wurzel
1: uh, is the king of Perth comedy. Yeah. And he hates it when people say that because (laughs) he was called the king of Perth comedy by the West Australian newspaper some years ago. And uh, it keeps getting trotted out like it's an (laughs) article of faith. Uh, But it's true. He is the granddaddy. He is the the maestro. Uh, In so many ways, he's a very fine stand-up comedian. No question. He's also the mentor, the guide the advisor, the strategist, the networker, the kind of enforcer of boundaries and expectations around the Perth comedy scene. Uh, anyone who's doing anything talks to him for advice. Uh, and he uh, is is very generous with, with his gifts. Uh, and a few years ago, he dropped out of stand-up comedy to pursue a career as... Uh, initially, he was going to be an Anglican priest... But now he's looking more at the, at the Uniting Church uh, for ministry. And people were quite baffled by this. I think they know him uh, as, a, as a person who drinks well and, uh, you know, perhaps other substances and who lives, a, you know, a particular kind of lifestyle that they might not have associated with Christian ministry. He and I met at my first gig. He was the MC. And I got on and did my five-minute set, which was about basically about being a priest at a party, um, which, which is you know, it is very interesting. When people ask what do you do, mm-hmm. I usually lie and say so I'm a male stripper. Um, it's easier, much yeah. easier than saying a priest. Male stripper makes perfect sense. So he then said to me, "Hang on, who are you? Where are you from? Have we ever met?" Um, trying to join the dots because I. We, we hadn't met up to yeah. that point. and And from there blossomed uh, a friendship. And the friendship grew into a creative partnership. And together we've created this beast called Pirate Church. Um, and I can't reveal right now uh, the precise details, but I can say to yeah. your listeners, Ryan, that Pirate Church is about to enter a, a very exciting new phase uh, in which uh, we have a whole new it's going to be big is what yeah. I'm saying it's going, be big. <laughs> it's going to be big it's going to be exciting uh and and we'll be performing a lot more regularly and uh creating a much stronger and bigger community around um around the pirate church uh brand if you like
0: yeah.
1: and uh yeah Wurzel and I are on one level very similar characters we're both extremely lazy and very good at procrastinating uh we're both the kind of people who do nothing for six weeks and then do all the work in the last twenty-four hours, uh, and we we both have very creative personalities. Um, what we've discovered as creative partners is that I am marginally more organised, so I do the the more organising logistical things. He has an eye uh, and an ear and a sense of comedic timing that far outstrips anything I can do, uh, and so he tends to take the lead on show design and writing and then we you know we both sort of cross fertilize um he's also a very good friend and uh and we've shared over the last you know since we met now seven eight years ago um shared a lot of our ups and downs and struggles mm. and the journey and so on um and, and 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 we share a faith and that's been uh really interesting and, and not just in both being christian but also in both being um, what is often called progressive Christians. So, you know, we're both really very strongly committed to issues of social justice, uh, committed to marriage equality, um, committed to uh, uh, the um, a, a really informed and uh, nuanced understanding of faith for the 21st century. Uh, but we also... Hilariously, I think, and almost counterintuitively, love the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean the institutional church and the, the officers and the, the people in hats. I mean the actual quirky weirdos who hang around churches. And part of that is, like earlier I was talking about the nature of the comedy room is that a building community. You go in, you, you let all your kind of shit out and laugh and, and it's a transformative experience. We would call that sacramental go into the comedy room you come out come out changed church is a a very similar process you've got to you've got to sort of rub up against people who are very different to you you've got to have all of your your um, preconceptions challenged uh, and you you go into these sort of darkened buildings Mm -hmm. um, and mysterious bizarre things happen in there and uh, and you come away changed somehow and for for Wurzel and I as people who are working um, he he currently is working in ministry and also doing some training mm. I as a the kind of quintessential parish priest we've both found the the love of the church the love of comedy um, has has brought us together in a in a really close friendship and creative partnership uh, and I don't even I don't even know how it happened mm. uh, I don't know how how it I suppose it's it's that remarkable thing of sometimes you just meet someone along the road yeah. and you get to chatting and the next thing you know you you know you can't imagine a life where you, you where you don't know that person. Um, yeah, Wurzel is an extraordinary character. He's also barking mad, and I think <laughs> I, I think it's really important to emphasise that. Um, you know, sometimes when I talk about him and, and he will say the same about me, I'm sure. When I talk about him, I praise him a lot. He's also quite bonkers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's he's manic and, and you know, has mood swings and, and I'm also quite mad in my own way. So um, <laughs> part of that and his journey with mental health, um, he's, he's quite open about it. Mm. I'm not uh, telling a, a story that's unknown. Um, his journey with mental health um, and his understanding of, Faith and comedy and life that have come through that has been really eye opening for me, mm. um, and it also helped me go, oh, maybe yeah, no, maybe I have mental health issues, and that explains mm. a lot about uh, about how I see the world. Oh, so much. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been extraordinarily fruitful.
0: Because he's he's a really interesting character. Because I have to say, didn't he in a couple of fringe fringes past, mm. He directed Othello. He did, yeah with an, an amazing cast, yep. um, a, a wonderful, diverse cast. Uh, um, I can't remember some of the name of the actors. I, never, I wanted to see it, but I couldn't see it. Yeah, he's just a, a very interesting character. Yeah. And I would like to one day, if, if Wurzel, I'll, I'll approach him. I'd love to have him on the podcast.
1: Yeah, he, um, he did the opposite to me and started as a professional artist in his teens, um, uh, both stand-up comedy and acting. Uh, and he still does that working you know movies and yeah. commercials and live theater yes. and all of that um and then has come to ministry later on i 've gone done the opposite route. I was at theological college I was still seventeen on my first day of theological college um, and so and I, so i 've come in a sense to the arts second yeah um, so we we often talk about our reverse journeys um, and and actually when we talk often, I always rely on his expertise around um the creative process and he relies mm. on my expertise a lot around the ministry process because I've been doing this for a while yeah. uh, and I know one or two things now. Um, and yeah, we, we often, um, you know, it actually happens all the time. He calls me for advice on a professional matter yeah. and I call him for advice on a, a professional artistic matter.
0: Yeah. Ah, now. Now now is the time. Now is <laughs> the time. Um, so I was trying to do some sort of Peter Sellers sort of thing, but that didn't, it didn't turn out well. Um, what quality is needed to be a practising artist?
1: I think you have to believe in your art. I, in my younger days, and still, was a lover of musical theatre. I think, as an art form, I think it's just it's just razzle-dazzle, and I like mm-hmm. it. But actually the thought today of being, say, in the ensemble of a large-scale musical doesn't excite me the idea of going out every day, doing the same show, getting your choreography just right and singing your harmonies correctly and, and all of that, um, I don't have any passion for that anymore. Mm-hmm. And the my, the last show that I did in musical theatre was, was lovely. It was a really good show and I uh, had a really fun role and it was perfectly adequate. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I thought, I, I didn't care about that at all, really. I didn't find a way to... Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that sometimes art can be technically proficient, but it doesn't arise out of your own passion. It doesn't come from a place where you love something and, and therefore that causes you to create. Um, and I suppose it's the difference between uh, craft and art. Uh, you can be a very... Effective craftsman craftsperson and create things that are technically skilled and functional but art has to have love in it, it has to kind of be that the love has to be sort of tied up in it there's I think of when I think of this I think of street art street art is a thing or every city council in Australia and probably in the world thinks that street art is a way to Build, you know community or to you mm. know foster a sense of identity or to decorate you know mm. they just want to, and it's infinitely variable but sometimes a, a council will spend fifty thousand dollars on a, a steel sculpture mm. that just says nothing but then around the corner there's graffiti type street mm. art you know that's that's arising from the lived experience and arising from a person's passion um, I'd actually rather see the, the so-called graffiti yeah. than the, the corporatised um, street art uh, that, that we often see. And, and, and it's the same in just about every art form. If you want to make money out of theatre, you're looking for the kind of populist product. Yeah. But if you, to, if you want to make a life uh, as a theatrical practitioner, it's got to arise out of your, your passion. Uh, and I, and I and that that's such a a twee thing to say because if you've gone and done a degree in the arts or trained up, you want to pay the bills, yeah. you know, and you want to put petrol in your car, and people constantly compromise their values in order to make a living. And who wants to condemn someone for mm. for earning a living? But my hope for any artist, including myself, would be. Even if you have to do the face painting at children's parties to make a living, Mm -hmm. even if you have to teach the local ballet class, you know, to put food on the table, make sure that's never all you do. Make sure there's Mm -hmm. also a project that might not be commercially viable, but that is artistically beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ah, and now we get to the the granddaddy question. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, I'll I'll ask it. Can we talk about Bettinggate?
1: I do not I, at this yeah. stage. Yeah.
0: Oh no, actually,
1: yeah, I can. Yeah, sure, I can talk in general terms. General
0: yeah. terms. Can I give a bit of context? Well, how
1: about how about I oh, yeah, yeah, say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just in case. Um. The so earlier this year, I was um advised that some sort of complaint had been made against me uh, to the Professional Standards Unit of uh, of the Diocese of Perth. And when I asked for details, the details that were provided were a series of criticisms of um, my work as an artist and activist. And particularly uh, how that has been uh, portrayed and perceived on social media. And uh, the bizarre thing has been the, the not so much, I I don't mind if someone has a complaint or a Mm. concern, but the weird process that has accompanied it. Uh, and the uh, the denial of procedural fairness has been quite bizarre. Fortunately, I have very good lawyers who work for free. <laughs> and um, that has been been a useful protection. But the interesting thing about it is none of it, nobody's been hurt. Yeah. There's been no, there's no victim. It's actually a political attack. And uh, it's been quite stressful, but also very amusing as people try to, uh, just a few people, but some powerful people by the looks of it, have tried to construct a narrative where I am just the worst person, <laughs> like I'm just a terrible person, and and the baffling thing about that is all the things that I'm I'm being sort of criticised for or complained about are all the things that I really like about myself and that other people really like about me. So it, it's been yeah a very strange period, but I don't know if it's fair or not, but I, I suppose I would say in fairness for the institutional church that I inhabit through the same period has been in absolute turmoil, uh, rightly, as a result of the Royal Commission into Institutional yeah. Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. The way that the organisation has responded has been uh, interesting, yeah. would be a yeah. term I would use diplomatically. Uh, and so the kind of... then to It's like we can't control the big problem we have but we can try to control the comedy priest so yeah. so let's go after him and that when I'm sort of calm about it and I'm calmer now than I was yeah. a few months ago when I'm calm about it isn't that the funniest thing in the world it's, Isn't is. that just the funniest thing in the world? That in the midst of a crisis of confidence, in the midst of you know really serious legal issues, in the midst of people being badly abused, and this all coming to the surface, um, the response of the institution of the bureaucrats, yeah. basically, the response is to, um, to to lodge a complaint about a pirate church. <laughs> And, and you sort of go, yeah, okay, this is the world. This is what it's really like, you know. And and it's the same, you know, Donald Trump, who is the gift <laughs> to comedy. I mean, what yeah. a hoot. And he, But also an evil and dangerous man. Yeah. He, you know, he did this thing just a few days ago about saying that he's going to ban transgender yes. people from the, the military. And it is just the most transparent bit of misdirection. You know, he's like a magician just yeah. saying, you know, um, trying to direct your attention elsewhere, right in the middle of, um, of this scandal with Russia. He's just sacked his chief of staff this morning. All of this is going on, but he's like, Oh, but also (laughs) also. in my spare time, I'm also going to ban transgender people from the military. And that, that's why the world is intrinsically comedic. Um, because if we don't, if we don't laugh at that, it's a very serious matter, by the way, like transgender people, should not be mistreated in any context. But if we can't laugh about the, the, the sheer hypocrisy and transparency of, of his behaviour and the imbeciles that with which he surrounds himself, if we can't laugh about that, that's actually a sign that we're moving down a totalitarian path, that our mm. society is actually starting to crumble, that civilisation is starting to crumble when we stop laughing. And I think this is the point in the, in the church culture I inhabit. If we can't laugh and if we can't dissent uh, if we can't protest, if we can't criticise and argue, then then we are actually already dead. We, we, we should actually pack up, just turn off the lights and walk away from this organisation we've created and try again. But I, I'm actually quite committed. I think it, it's a bit of a blip in our, in our common life, this sort of complaint. Nobody will ever confirm that there is actually a complaint. That's the best part. I think it, it'll pass and we, we'll, we'll find our feet again. We'll hopefully get to a place of, of our reputation being restored in the community uh, and we'll also address the kind of sickness and dysfunction uh, that gave rise to the abuse of children, the ongoing abuse of others that still happens mm. and the, the sick processes that make it such a highly charged political environment. That's what I hope, anyway. I'm working towards that. Mm. Either that, or I'll, you know, go and work in Coles, um, <laughs> because you know, that's there's got to be comedy there as well, yeah. like,
0: you know. This is oh what yeah Coles. <laughs> oh dear me. Speaking about Coles, mm. um, shout out to my um, my cousin Michael Coyle. <laughs> Um, who is... He was... I think last year that... I remember watching a today. He was featured on Today. Mm. And I believe he was crowned the Prince of Coles or something. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? No, no, it's very interesting. He... he, Because he... This is in New South Wales because I've got family over in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And he... Like, he he keeps winning of, like, the Employee of the Month Award like like, for a year or two years. And he gives, like, this... he, He gives customer service. I think... Yeah, and I think yeah the the media and he was like you know talking to you know Carl Stephen mm-hmm. radio. I thought it was just great for him because mm. um, he's a, he's a really interesting person because he's also a professional poker player. Mm-hmm. Very, <laughs> but an interesting um, sure. character. Um, yes. Ah, sorry. As I say, ah, is there in my studies with the BPA course at WAPA in our first year we had like a history unit and we talked a lot about. Uh, like, there's this wonderful um, American um, um, performance scholar, um, Richard uh, Schnechner. I can't pronounce his last name, Schnechner. <laughs> or something. It's sure. uh, This wonderful guy. Um, and he talks about, you know, ritual. Yep. The relationship between art and ritual. Yes. And I thought I'd ask you, is there a separation between art and relig- uh, religion? Mm. Or is there a distinction Because I feel that the things do go, you know, hand in hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Big question. I think um, the arts and religion have had very close partnerships over time uh, and also been mortal enemies at different times. Mm -hmm. So there's been a rivalry between the arts and religion and there's also been a partnership. And that's because they both... In a sense, they're both walking along the same path, but they're just walking a bit differently or at different speeds. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the arts speak to the soul in a way that religion seeks to, and the arts communicate truths, and that's also the kind of purview of religion. And sometimes the arts are deeply provocative, and so is religion, or should religion should be that. Mm -hmm. What fascinates me... Is that there's a kind of hierarchy or categorization in different forms of Christianity around the arts. So, for instance, the mega church movement, the kind of contemporary big church movement, has basically taken the rock concert model and turned and Christianized it. So the service is barely distinguishable from a rock concert. Mm. Smoke machine, lighting, great sound mixing, excellent, truly excellent musicians. Mm. Uh, it's, it's brilliant and it's very emotive. Um, there's a, a lecturer at Murdoch University, Mark Jennings, who's done research on the, the similarities between the rock concert and the mm. kind of modern Pentecostal megachurch uh, experience. And yet other forms of art... Uh, from the From the same people who who use the the kind of rock concert model, uh, other forms of art are quite scary, mm-hmm. so art forms that might involve uh, sexual themes or nudity or um, that might uh, satirise or mock religion then become quite scary so there 's this kind of culture wars element as mm-hmm. well For my own church, there are art forms that conventionally like choral music of course is mm-hmm. is sort of central. Or has been to the the Western Christian tradition uh, iconography stained glass other forms of you know the, the organ as an mm. instrument um, we just love um, but I think there is still elements of animosity and and suspicion around art forms like well, like comedy for instance mm. so and uh, stand-up comedy and satire uh, there's a lot of fear around that Um, and some of that's generated i think because of the concern about causing offense and because for some aspects of christianity being nice is the primary virtue and if you're not nice if you say something that's not nice or if you cause someone to be offended that is the greatest crime that you might upset the stability uh, of the community that you inhabit so it's a very vexed relationship between religion and the arts, I can't actually remember what your question was. No, now. no,
0: but the, yeah, no, it's, uh, is there a separation between art and religion? But yeah. I think, but no, I think if you did address yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, I feel there is this wonderful, um, I like to say this organic bond. It's a, this interesting, you know, history and evolution. And yeah, they both walk the same path. mm,
1: mm. mm. In a yeah, way. very much so, yeah. All religion uses the arts in some way. Mm. Even the most conservative Christian sects, for instance, there are some Christian churches who would like the Amish, mm-hmm. who meet in barns; they don't have church buildings, and and they sit on benches. But even they sing, mm-hmm. uh, and they and in fact their whole lives are very artistic. The yeah. the clothing that they make and the the um, woodwork and so on. So I feel like it's actually and this this is actually a really interesting research question for someone. Every religion has artworks. Or styles, styles of art, and forms of art that they validate and affirm, and forms of art that they're afraid of, uh, and and it's it's interesting to map and try to analyze why why they like certain art forms and dislike others.
0: Have you ever met Father Bob?
1: No, uh, I n- yeah we we know a lot of people in common, but I've never actually met him. Yeah,
0: because I just because I feel like your WA is Father Bob, <laughs> 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 I, I but well. Obviously, there's, a, there's lots of differences, but like there's sort of the, the public profile. Yeah. We, we, there, there are these two priests, both of them are funny. Mm. Well, one is professionally funny, one's not, you know. He's just intrinsically <laughs> <Sorry>. funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, to me, the, the commonality between Father Bob, who is a fine priest mm-hmm. and quite frail now, is that we have both, so far, stuck with the institutional church. In the face of many good reasons not to, Um, so Father Bob, you know, was was really his bishop really gave him a hard time, but he's he always would say he's a team player. He signed up to be part of the team, and he he would not ever slag off the Catholic Church. He would he might express a dissenting view, but it was it's always done in a in a quite a gracious and thoughtful way, not as an attack on the organisation. I try to do the same, although I'm accused sometimes of um, of of not doing that and uh yeah he he was discovered by John safran almost um and the interesting thing to me about Father Bob is that he he doesn't cultivate anything he just is himself, yeah, and then and people come people want that people yeah. want him, so he does you know t v or radio or you know documentary and you know and a lot of that's about building up funding for his foundation well, I cultivate quite actively like i <laughs> You know, I actually work hard at creating art and, and, and seeking out uh, media opportunities. Um, but, yeah, it'll he, he's, he's getting more frail. And yeah. I think Rod Bauer at Gosford Anglican Church, uh, he of the signs, people are, are noticing um, in, in a big way, yeah. the signs, he's a, another high-profile, somewhat unusual advocate um, who, who's a priest. Um, and there are others. Oh, there's always a few. A few. Yeah. My sort of hero is, is Ernest Bergman, who was the Bishop of uh, Goulburn oh. in New South Wales, which included Canberra. So he actually lived in Canberra. And he, he his uh, biography was called uh, The Troublesome Priest. Oh. And uh, he was known for um, d- d- bowling up to Parliament House and going around knocking on doors on certain issues. And he was forever, he was a nuisance yeah. in a good way, you know. And uh, at the time, he he you know he'd often write op eds in in the the newspaper, and you know he was for his era. This is in the fifties and sixties. He was building up um, the equivalent then of a public profile, mm. and, and 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 he he exploited it shamelessly. And so, uh, yeah, I think there there's a kind of seam, a rich seam around around the world. Um, you know, the, Britain has Giles Fraser, and mm. the the US has. Um, um, I'm forgetting names now, but, you know, the, there's always a yeah. few clergy, you know, the the, the meddlesome clergy. And uh, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's tough to keep your boundaries. Like about, yeah. um, sometimes I have to be really clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the church. Yeah. yeah. And that, especially around marriage equality, where the official mm. position of the church is very clear, but actually in practice, the great majority of, of, of Christians, there's clear research that says, the great majority of Christians support marriage equality, so, uh, but it's always a fine line to uh, present, say this is who I am, but I I'm not the official spokesperson for the organisation.
0: Is there a temptation for you to leave WA and go back to the Far East?
1: No. I have no desire, to be honest, I have no desire to live in one of the big cities on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I like to visit occasionally. Uh, I have, to be honest though, I also have no desire to live in Perth per Mm. se. Mm. Um, I I knew, when I was first ordained, I met an older priest who was just getting to retirement and we were talking about, because he he had a really interesting career. Mm. He travelled a lot and and worked in interesting places and I I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll get to do that or maybe, you know. And he said, you know, the thing is, you've got to live where you are. And he said, it's actually, if you don't live where you are, if your brain is constantly going somewhere else, um, and and aspiring to something or craving something or coveting something, if that's if that's what what you're doing, then you're not present to where you are. So whether you you are living in in a village in rural China, or whether you're living in you know suburban Sydney or in in a hole somewhere <laughs> like wherever you're living, yeah. uh, you've got to live in that place, and it, it, a change will come. But if you're constantly looking for the next thing, I, I think that's very unhealthy. Um, and something I'm finding now that I'm quite old—I'm 37—I'm um, finding I quite like the idea of stability of settling mm. into a place. And I'm not kind of looking around from time to time. People will will approach or make an offer or you know express interest, and and mostly I, in fact, always I say, "Oh, that's very kind of you and very flattering, yeah. but actually, you know, I'm going to stay put for quite a while yet."
0: it's yeah. well, good to hear mm. Is there a lesson that you learn from your job mm. that keeps occur occurring in your artistic practice? Yes so I was
1: trained uh in the priesthood in a in a quite conventional way. I went to St. John's College, Morpeth, which is now shut down, but it it was it was classic. I got up in the morning we'd be up in the chapel at seven thirty a m uh, all in black cassocks and and uh we'd and chapel four times a day and uh we'd do a lot of singing and we also had to do manual labor every week as part of our um so we'd mow lawns and clean up and um it was quite a structured environment, kind of away a it was in a rural area away from the big smoke a a little bit like monastic mm. uh it was good it was fine. Um, but that's all, all a bit of context because um, the way that we were told to carry ourselves in, uh, in the liturgy, in the public worship, uh, was there's three areas that you've got to get right. Vesture, posture, gesture. And if you get vesture, posture, gesture right, then that enables, the, the aim is to enable the congregation to worship. That is a very useful skill yeah. that I have subsequently applied in all sorts of uh, artistic endeavors. Um, Vesture just meaning you have got to be dressed in yeah. the appropriate thing. Posture is how you you know stand yeah. and move, and and gesture are the is uh, it's a kind of deliberateness. There's nothing worse than an accidental gesture. <laughs> whether whether you're an actor in a play yeah. or whether you're a priest at the altar, everything has to be intended, mm. it has to be deliberate. Yeah, that would be that's the lesson from ministry that I've taken into the arts, vesture, posture, gesture.
0: What's it like getting arrested?
1: Yeah, <laughs> um the first time was very stressful and the second time was quite easy once yeah. you know. I I I um I was arrested uh, as part of twice as part of a sit-in. Uh, It was quite a movement around Australia, a couple of hundred clergy have been arrested as part of the Love Makes Away movement, calling on the closure of offshore detention centres and particularly the release of children from immigration detention centres. And we won on that, there are no children left except on Nauru, which is a great tragedy. I was raised to really respect authority and with a strong sense of shame, and you have to overcome both of those things to, involve, to get involved in arrestable non-violent direct action like that. And it really, I was, when the actual arrest happened the first time, I was sweating, mm. uh, my mouth was dry, I was nervous, so I was very anxious. Um, the police were generally okay uh, in the way they, they treated us, they were very respectful. The thing that really stands out for me is that the the police and kind of judicial system is not just. Now, I was fine. I'd been involved in a protest. I had hundreds of supporters. It was a very minor charge and I had free lawyers. Even so, the administrative hurdles that had to be overcome to get to court and to make sure that you um, had all the right information and that your plea was made correctly yeah. and... You could get a spent conviction and, 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 and all of yeah. these boundaries. I'm like, how is it? I'm a, a well-resourced person who basically didn't do anything terribly yeah. wrong. I didn't hurt anyone. Uh, it was a technicality of the law that I, I broke on both occasions for a really good reason. But if you've been busted, you know, with a bit of marijuana or mm. you've been sleeping rough and got arrested for being in the wrong place, or, you know, you've, got in a fight, yeah. whatever, or normal things, I cannot begin to imagine how those people effectively navigate mm. the justice system. And in fact, I think, I know from my own experience, time and time again, people don't navigate the justice system, which makes it worse for them. It was a real eye-opener for me. A group that I helped to get arrested, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't arrested myself on the day, ended up being strip-searched at the, at the watch house in, uh, in Perth. And that was a really traumatic experience for some of them who'd experienced abuse uh, in their life. Mm. And that really brought to the fore the fact that actually a lot of people in the world and in Perth are being arrested and having these very intrusive searches done on them uh, that aren't strictly necessary. There are some instances where it is necessary. But... So alongside the fact that we were advocating for refugees and asylum seekers, which is our primary goal, We also discovered, as basically middle class people, how difficult it is if you get caught up in that Mm -hmm. system, um, it's really difficult to uh, navigate. And you see then why large numbers of people end up in prison, sometimes rightly for doing really dreadful things, but often it's just an accumulation of little things. Uh, And it's something that's very dear to my heart at the moment. Why on earth are people in prison for years on end, really for just doing a few bits and pieces? There were too many, too many little things wrong.
0: Well, time has come, Mm -hmm. as by the bell. (laughs) 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 Um, But but before we part the airwaves, um, so Chris, as we somewhat agreed in the year twenty twenty seven, I'll be trying. Hopefully, we'll meet again. Much more earlier before then, mm-hmm. but in the year 2027, I want to you know revisit you in a sure. this hopefully maybe in a more professional uh, broadcast <laughs> setting. Sure. So, in the year 20, as I keep repeating that year, mm. and when we meet again, don't know where, don't know how. Mm. What would you like to plug? In
1: 2027, mm. what would I like to plug? I I would really like. The thing that we've created with Pirate Church, which is about to boom, um, in <laughs> that's my hope. I'd really like to be plugging uh, the book oh. of where it's taken us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I harbour some some dreams of uh, of potentially a television uh, show, and uh. or potentially uh, some international touring. Mm. Um, but I also am. Harboring a, I don't know, perhaps a vain hope uh, of of it being part of a movement. Because for us, piracy is not just about ahoy, um, mi and yeah. and uh, having a parrot on your shoulder. There's also something a bit underground, a bit uh, a bit illicit, uh, a bit subversive, very subversive, in fact, about what we're doing. And I hope that we're not just making great art, but making great art that transforms. In particular, the church, which is the context that that we and most of our audience inhabit that um that there's a kind of a, a freedom uh and a hopefulness that arises out of um, pirate church as as a movement, yeah, so I think yeah, I think that'd be the hope that there's a kind of a book or a documentary or <laughs> yeah. you know whatever we have in ten years' time you yeah. know an, a, a brain implant. Um, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that just tells, tells the story of how we began and, and, and where it's gone. Yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, mm. absolutely. Here, here. Well, see you in 2027, or oh, definitely before then. But th- thank you very much for being here today.
1: Ryan, it's been a, it's been a joy. Thank you.